All right, cats and kittens, holy fucking shit. We are back in quarantine, in isolation, hanging out during the pandemic. But fuck it, it doesn't matter anymore because I have one of my favorite comedians of all time. Yeah, I've had Jimmy Pardo and Brian Pesade and Blaine Patch and yada yada, Paget Brewster, but the master, the true master, fresh off his fucking incredible performance on the Jimmy Kimmel Show at <laughs> Dr. Zayas. He's a writer. He's a performer. He is one of the most immense comic minds in Los Angeles, California. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you on the Brando cast today, Mr. Dana Gould. Thank you. You gave it away at uh, Dr. Zayas. There's only, there's only one semi-professional Dr. Zayas impersonator working these days. You know, back in the 80s, everybody was doing it. It was like cocaine. People couldn't stop doing Dr. Zayas impersonations. Who helped you put together the makeup for the other night? Because okay. it was it was flawless. Well, it was it was not flawless, I can tell you. <laughs> Somebody who has done it many times. I th- that whole idea for Dr. Zayas originally came from I know this is not why we're here to what we're here to talk about, but uh, that originally came when I was a writer on the Ben Stiller show in 92, three. And uh, I had an idea for two sketches. One was Planet of the Apes, the musical. And one, and this is before The Simpsons did it. And then, uh, and then the, the second sketch was a one-man show, Dr. Zayas as doing Mark Twain tonight. And the show got canceled before we get a chance to do either sketch and then the simpsons later totally separate of my idea ended up doing it it was before i went to the simpsons and it was i believe it was david cohen or john Beatty uh who had that idea i I might be wrong i think david cohen wrote the episode uh and that was that was where planet of the yips the musical went but dr zay is doing mark twain tonight uh died a lonely death and then Years later, like 2012, 2010, uh, John Hodgman had a contest going on online about doctors, somebody doing Dr. Zayas reading Mark Twain because there was a picture of one of the actors in makeup reading a Mark Twain biography, just a behind-the-scenes photo. And he called me about it, and I said, oh, my God, that's so funny. I wrote that as a sketch 20 years ago. And he goes, would you like to do it at Sketchfest? And my initial thought was, well, no, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do all that. And then I thought, wait a minute, I'm very good friends with Academy Award winning makeup artists. Um, Greg Nicotero, who does the executive produce and directs The Walking Dead, has a big makeup effects company called KNB Effects. They're all my friends. So I think, well, actually, I, I, I think I could do it. So I called my, Greg, who I was literally just texting with. 10 minutes ago. Uh, and I said, Hey, uh, do you know somebody that could do a Dr. Zayas makeup on me in San Francisco? I mean, obviously we'll pay for everything. He goes, uh, hang on a minute. Hey, do you have a San Francisco Yeah, sure. This sounds fun. Okay, great. And that was basically how it happened. And so that's on YouTube. Uh, me as Dr. Zayas doing Mark Twain tonight. And then just then somebody else said, Hey, would you do this? Would you do that? Would you? And it just turned into a weird side career. But the makeup has always been done by Andy Schoenberg, who's a, a brilliant uh, makeup artist who works for KNB. Okay. So did because, that individual... Of, uh, no, I was just going to say, 
He normally would, but because of social distancing, he couldn't do it. So he sent everything over to my house and then he talked me through doing it over FaceTime. Wow. But if it, but I'm not a makeup artist and my girlfriend helped me, but I was going live on Jimmy Kimmel at three o'clock. <laughs> and, and if it did not work, it did not work. And so, uh, it, it worked well enough. It, it looked amazing. And I have only one question about it. And that was the sort of the rant that you made towards the end yeah. of the appearance. Yeah. Was that, were those lines lifted? Oh, that was, uh, no. Well, Jesse Joyce wrote that sketch for Jimmy okay. Kimmel. That I did not, I didn't write that. Uh, that was Jesse was really brilliant. And it's not dissimilar to a rant that he goes on in the movie, but that was, that was written by Jesse. Uh, it was a tremendous performance. And you were Thank in the you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So it was super kick-ass. So, and, and for people listening at home, my Aunt Jean in Hudson, Ohio, if you missed it, it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. It's all on, there's a whole, if you go to YouTube and put in Dana Gould, Dr. Zayas, there's more than you ever would want or need. <laughs> I, well, one of my other favorite things uh, was uh, you doing Shatner. Uh, many, many, many moons. Oh, ago. the three, sh the three Shatner, the three Shatners you know, at Largo. That's a very, that's a very fun. So the three Shatners were me, Paul F. Tompkins, and Ken Daly, doing our parody of the three tenors. Obviously, you know, you made me, you just made me remember something. So the first time I did Dr. Zayas was at Sketchfest in San Francisco, and it was at Cobb's Comedy Club. So I'm there, I'm in full makeup, and it's bizarre to see in real life. It's because it's not like a shitty mask. It's exactly what they had in the movie. And then you walk in and it's just like, there's no substitute. It's like, ah! <laughs> so I'm up there at Cobbs. I'm in the full gear. But I'm also dressed like Mark Twain. I'm in Dr. Zayas makeup in a Mark Twain suit. Paul F. Tompkins comes up from the Three Shatters. Paul's father had recently passed away. And I had not seen him. And he walked in and he's like, oh my God. And then I have to say in a monkey mask, Paul, this is not the time or the place, but I am so terribly sorry about your father. And he, oh, because I had to say something, and he he roared. I mean, it was, it was, I was so glad that he did that and didn't go to the. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not every day that. Uh... Yeah, no, it's, it's it is what it is. All right, well, that's the setup. I'm so goddamn excited that you're here. More importantly. The biggest reason that I'm so excited is because you and I today are going to talk about one of my favorite bands, and I know one of your favorite bands. So, ladies and gentlemen, when you hear DeBaser in the background, that can only mean one thing. Today on the BrandoCast, we are talking about the goddamn Pixies. The Pixies are an American alternative rock band formed in 1986 in Boston, Massachusetts. The original lineup featured Black Francis on vocals and rhythm guitar, Joey Santiago on lead guitar, the legendary Kim Deal on bass and vocals, and David Lovering on drums. Spin Magazine described the Pixies' musical style as surf music meets the Stooges' spikiness. In 1991, Black Francis explained, we do try to to be dynamic but it's gumbo dynamics because we don't know how to do anything else we can play loud or quiet that is it dana gold take me back to when you first became a fan of the pixies i was also living in boston in 1986 and we used to 
not only see the Pixies perform at the Paradise, which was, there's a club on Com Avenue, Commonwealth Avenue called the Paradise, and there was a comedy club and, and adjacent to it, it was called Stitches. Mm-hmm. And then there was the Paradise. And we would see the Pixies for $5. And we would see Black Francis at the Alston Deli, the deli in our neighborhood. So they're like our band from the neighborhood. They encapsulated something that I did not, I mean, I knew I loved it at the time, but I did not know why I loved it. But what, the way that they would take surf guitar and over it put these, you know, grand guignol lyrics, these bizarre, uh, fantastical uh, songs with this this guitar that didn't belong to that genre. You know, that's my favorite thing. You know, I love, I love uh, like a, a, a drive-in horror movie, but with some smart dialogue. That's why I love the Coen brothers. Like, you know, this dialogue is too good for this movie, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like for the genre. That's, that's my favorite thing. That's what I try to aspire to in my own work and my own weird comedy version of it. But the Pixies and, you know, also I'm, you know, Irish Catholic, angry guy. It's very aggressive music, but I'm not a dummy. Uh, and it's smart music. And uh, it was it was literally like from when I first um, heard it, when I first heard Surfer Rosa, I was like, oh, this is for me. Is, do they know of anybody else who's going to buy it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. And, and I was, you know, it's one of those things you, I dovetailed with them. I was, t- I was talking about somebody like last night, because um, I'm older than you. I was 12 years old when Star Wars came out. I was I was the bullseye of the target of that movie. And that movie had 100% of its intended effect on me. You know, I walked out of that theater and I was like, yep, I'm different. I also dovetailed perfectly with the Pixies. You know, I was 23, I think, when Surfer Rosa came out. Well, I, I, it, it, I, that describes my experience perfectly because when you hear a band that fits you like a good pair of jeans or like your favorite t-shirt <laughs> yeah. and it becomes part of your identity, that's what I had because I got to college in the fall of 1986 and I was already immersed in college radio. So when the Pixies hit, I think for everyone like you, like me, who loved indie music, it was a game changer because their music was so unique and so fucking insane. And their live shows, I would hope off the bat, because you saw them before. I saw them when they first got to Chicago, because I went to school in Chicago. But I didn't get to see them in a tiny bar, you know, in Boston when they were first starting. Did you have the experience where they were like, oh, my God, these guys are freaking amazing? They were always freaking amazing. And also they and, you know, this was in the mid 80s. This was really at the, the height of the first wave of U2. Yeah. Like there's oh, yeah. a lot of heavy heaviness, a lot of heavy mega heaviness going on uh, as opposed, you know, and, and uh, you know, it was the end of the it was the end of the the bubblegum culture club. Cindy Lauper 80s was over and it was the beginning of you know, great, you know, a lot of music that I love, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen and the Cure. And I mean, they were really at their, you know, really getting into their peak time, you know, but dark, you know, industrial and and goth and emo and the pixies were none of that they didn't have pretentious wardrobe they just wore street clothes they were 
funny. I mean, they're just their lyrics. They, they didn't goof off at all, but they're, they're just what they were saying about like, oh yeah, the, no, these guys are funny. These guys are you know smart and funny. And for us nerd boys, uh, Kim Deal was nerdy hot. Yeah, so, she was uh, super nerd. Yeah, so she they. She looked like Janine. It was Janine Garofalo lived in Janine Garofalo lived with a, in Boston at the same time. We're like, yeah, that girl looks like Janine. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just carry on because I have a good uh, pixie story for you. After we say, Black Francis met Joey Santiago when they lived next to each other while attending the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, my alma mater. Well, we're going to get into that then. And they formed a band in January of 1986. Two weeks later. Black Francis placed an ad in the paper seeking a bass player who liked both Peter, Paul, and Mary and Husker Du. Kim Deal was the only person to respond to the ad. She arrived at the audition without a bass because she'd never played one. However, Deal was invited to join the band because she liked the songs Black Francis showed her. She got a bass, and the trio started rehearsing in Deal's apartment. The band soon hired drummer David Lovering, and they arrived at a name after Santiago randomly selected the word Pixies from Dictionary, liking the definition as mischievous little elves. The band moved rehearsal to Lovering's parents' garage, and they began to play shows at bars in the Boston area where Dana got to see them. In March of 1987, the band entered Boston's Fort Apache Studios to record a demo tape. The resulting 17-song cassette, later dubbed The Purple Tape, eventually found its way to the influential British record label 4AD. 4AD then handpicked eight of the tape's 17 songs to make up a mini-album, and that was 1987's Come On Pilgrim. What was uh, what was uh, UMass Amherst like in the uh, the mid '80s or the early '80s? Uh, well, it was called ZooMass. Okay. To the people that attended it, and why? That was why? A very appropriate name. It why? was an, it was just working class kids from Massachusetts. It was just drunken Irish kids and drunken Italian kids. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is ninety percent of Massachusetts at that time, and. Uh, it was, it was, yeah, I, I think that we I actually, I actually had uh, Joey Santiago on my podcast. Okay. Uh, the, the Danny Gould hour. And we, I think I, we were there at the same time, but we never crossed paths. What were you into? Uh, but a theater. <laughs> theater. <laughs> and how did that uh, go? Treading the boards, treading the boards, you young man. Did you take over my, the, uh, that bitch got a theater. No, I got a. Uh, I, I got into it and uh, uh, realized I didn't like it. <laughs> I got into the theater program and realized I really wanted to be a comedian. Did you ever do a serious straight play at uh, UMass? I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, Dogs Hamlet Cahoots Macbeth, uh, which was written by Tom Stoppard. I did. That's a real play. Wow. Wow. Yeah. With Mark Cohen. If you know Mark Cohen, he was in it too. Uh, I don't know Mark Cohen. Who is yeah, Mark he's Cohen? Comedian. He's, he's a comedian uh, okay. and, an, and a very talented actor uh, who lives in um, New York now, probably. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. And, I in, and I was in Joe Egg too. Did you start to do improv or were you in like the, the theater department improv group? Or I was already, no, I'd already been doing stand up. I started doing stand up two weeks out of high school. I was already a working stand up comedian. I was making money. Uh, I had a show at UMass on Wednesday nights at the, at the campus bar, the Blue Wall. 
uh, L.A. Comedy's Dave Rath was also uh, at UMass at the time. Legendary uh, manager Dave Rath. Yeah, he was there at the time. Uh, Andy Gordon, who's a uh, t- talented uh, TV writer, yep. uh, he was there at the time. And uh, yeah, no, I had a regular show and I was making money. And uh, so mm-hmm. I was just I kept following the money, as they say. Nice. Were you into indie rock when you were in college? Were you were tangentially? You- I was really, really into comedy. I mean, I was you know when you first started out. And you just submerge yourself in it. And, 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 you know, it's like how you really accurately describe the Pixies when you hear something and it becomes a part of your identity. Uh, you know, right then, my identity was I was a comedian. I was probably also just thoroughly unbearable to be around because I was so obsessed with it. And, but it's where I got into good music was at UMass. That's where I really got into Elvis Costello and, and, uh, you know, the, the Pixies, I was out of college before uh, Come On Pilgrim came out. Uh, but yeah, that's where I really get into Elvis Costello and, and R.E.M. and, you know, that sort of my era. You, you labeled yourself at 12 for Star Wars. So does that mean that some of your comedy heroes were Steve Martin, Robin Williams, George Carlin, Richard Pryor? Yeah, those are all of them. Yeah. And yeah. Eddie Murphy was huge, too. Yeah. Right. Because I'm, t- yeah. I'm I think I'm a year and a half or two years younger than you. Uh-huh. I'm 55. So- Okay, so I'm 50, I'll be 53 in November. Right. So at the, at the end of the 70s, for those of us, because I love comedy too, we all had the Steve Martin records. There was no comparing Steve yeah. Martin's fame to anyone before or since. It's really hard to describe how white hot and giant Steve Martin was, and Robin yeah. Williams too. Yeah, but and maybe, I mean, Eddie Murphy in 1983 comes close, yep. but in 1978, Steve Martin stood astride the world <laughs> he was a colossus he was as big as any rock band and uh, we 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 memorized those goddamn records and shouted it at each other at school on monday you know yeah the best fishes poster that everybody had i had it which, too yeah no it was people don't it, it, it's just because because media is different yeah. but he had uh, you know so, but between saturday night live when in its first incarnation and the you know the tonight show the, mid, the midnight special remember that you know don kirshner's rock concert i mean comedy was very you know there was only four places you could see it uh you know there were seven channels and uh, and he was on all of them yeah it was just well, a different it, time i relax at night by watching the midnight special because most of it is on youtube and uh, yeah the way that I like to wind down is just to like have a cocktail and, you know, watch uh, Fleetwood Mac sing Rhiannon on the Midnight Special. Yeah, it was in some bad, a lot of bad pants. And bands, <laughs> and bands on the Midnight Special, they're like, being attractive, being physically appealing was not mandatory in the 70s. Like, nope. Steely Dan, there's not a good looking guy in that. Nope. 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 Not a nope, lot nope. of teenage girls with Steely Dan posters. Nope. Christopher Cross was not uh, pulling ladies if he nope. didn't have a hit single. Nope. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, speaking of pulling ladies, because you're from Massachusetts, did you have any Aerosmith in you at all? And I know that you grew up in a well, world that was every fucking idiot in your town probably uh, had. Well, Aerosmith. because I am from a very, very small town in Massachusetts called Hopedale, uh, which is a you know, it's a suburb of a small town. It's not even a small town. It's a suburb. And I am the most famous person to come out of Hopedale, with the exception of Joe Perry. 
Holy fucking shit. Whose mother was a gym teacher at our high school, Mrs. Perry. Mrs. Perry. <laughs> Mrs. Perry. And uh, so, yeah, Joe Perry is from Hopedale. And so my brother Jim, when they would rehearse at the Hopedale Community House, used to load Aerosmith's amps for them. And they were just like a local band. They were like the hot local bar band. Uh, so, yeah, of course, I, I mean, uh, Aerosmith was all over my high school listening. Is there a bronze statue of Joe Perry in front of the Hopedale High School? And not, not, neither one of us. The, the, <laughs> they're, not, they're not proud of either one. But a funny story, uh, several years ago, I was, I was married at the time, and my wife and I... I was at your wedding. So. Look how well that worked out. <laughs> yeah. um, so long story longer... Sue, who you know from my wedding, uh, Sue and I were at a big party, like Vanity Fair Oscar party. She's, you know, a big exec. And, and you know, we were a flashy couple. And we're walking out of this Oscar party. And it was like 2007. And I see Steven Tyler walking in. And he's dressed head to toe in leather, bunch of scarves, eating an In-N-Out burger. <laughs> and he's walking up and i'm and i'm talking to sue and we're just chatting and walk up joe perry gets next to me and i say uh, my brother used to load your amps at the hopedale community house and he stops and he looks at me and he goes you're from hopedale and i go yeah i am he goes what are you doing out here i go same, I go, same as you i'm in show business and we start talking just chatting and he's a really nice guy. And then my wife goes like, I didn't realize you had stopped. I was continuing talking to you. And then I look and you're not there. And I look back and you're talking to, and you're talking to Steven Tyler. <laughs> like you guys are old friends. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. Oh, yeah, I will... a lot of Toys in the Attic was a very big, uh, big album in our high school. You know, whatever their big song was. Well, I will gently remind you uh, that uh, your uh, ex-wife was my ex-agent. Isn't that a fun little detail? That's right. <laughs> She's no longer a wife or an agent. <laughs> no, no, no. She kicked me to the curb a long time ago. Speaking of albums. Well, we have a lot in common, Brendan. <laughs> the Pixies followed up Come On Pilgrim with the seminal Surfer Rosa. The album was recorded by Steve Albini from Big Black. It was completed in two weeks and released in early 1988. The album gained the Pixies acclaim in Europe. Both Melody Maker and Sounds gave Surfer Rosa their Album of the Year award. After the album was released, the band arrived in England to support the Throwing Muses on the European Sex and Death Tour, which began at the Mean Fiddler in London, and the Pixies were on their way. Now, speaking of the Throwing Muses... And it was very, it was very strange for them to be on 4AD, too, because 4AD was not... Like uh, I mean, the, the Cocteau Twins were on 4AD. You know, yep. it, it was a nothing against the Cocteau Twins. I actually love the Cocteau Twins, but it was not. They weren't like our label mates, the Cocteau Twins. <laughs> 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 yeah, it was, you know, it was there was an odd choice for a, 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 a alt band from from Boston. Well, they just didn't. They actually didn't get they actually didn't get a distribution deal in the US until after Surfer Rosa came out. Yeah, cuz I were, mentioned they were sort of ignored. Hollywood yeah. gets it wrong all the time. That well, yeah, that's the all the uh, as they they say the best work is done in uh, 
in defiance of management. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, like I actually became aware of them after do uh, after Doolittle. I think I had to go back. And, so you went. Uh, so you le- when you graduated from UMass, did you move to Boston straight away? I was living in Boston in eighty six and eighty seven. I moved to San Francisco in eighty seven, but I was always in Boston at my old apartment because my my old roommate was also a comedian and so i was always back and forth so like 87 88 89 i was living in san francisco but i was always in boston now is that did you just meet all the all the fucking crazy people who are in san francisco doing comedy uh at that at the late 80s did you yeah well they're all my friends yeah Yeah, they're all your (laughs) friends well the group that was there and the crew that was there and i was there was like uh, Jake Johansson, John Ross, mm-hmm. uh, Jeremy Kramer, uh, Susan Healy. You know, it was Warren Thomas, uh, uh, and then a, a lot of the second wave, like uh, Brian Posehn and Pat Oswalt and Blake Apache. They were they moved there long after I moved to L.A. I was okay. I got that. That's that, that's what I was wondering. Like when you start to Greg Barrett, because, Greg Barrett, and all those of people. course. I just had Greg on this podcast. Yeah, they're all my friends. I mean, they're all my friends. Right. <laughs> of course. Well, I, I, you know, I started, I, you know, I moved out here in 1990 and I Good saw year. you guys do the very early, ver- like Largo before Largo at the Onyx. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Onyx, big and tall books. Yep. Big and tall books. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Jesus. And all those places. So uh, yeah, I, 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 I always wondered when, you know, everyone meets in Los Angeles, but w- when do you meet other people out and out and about in Boston or San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, I met all those guys in San Francisco, but it was when I would go up to work. You know, I was living in L.A. and I would go up to work in San Francisco, work at Cobbs or whatever. And But, you know, moving, moving to San Francisco, moving to Los Angeles from San Francisco, the soundtrack... Of, of that move for me is uh, Spike, the Elvis Costello album, and and Bossa Nova. It's that, like, that moment in time for me is that those are those albums. What, why did you decide to go to San Francisco from Massachusetts? Uh, my friends were in San Francisco, you know, Bobcat and Tom Kenny and Dan Spencer and all my friends that I knew from Boston, they moved to San Francisco. They didn't move to New York. So I had connections out there. My friends were out there. I went out and did a gig. I really liked it as a city. It's pretty, I I knew that I wanted to go to LA and not New York. So I thought, well, I'll go to San Francisco for a couple of years, get better at being a comedian. And I, you know, I did know that I wasn't ready, but I knew I would get there. And, uh, and so it was actually, it was one of the few things in my life that worked out exactly as I had planned it to work out (laughs) and it worked out well. And those were really like living in San Francisco for me were what I consider my college years. Right. Not that I was going to college, but I was young and, and, uh, you know, goofing off when I was in college, I was really just all about establishing myself as a comedian. I didn't give a shit right. about college. What did you live in like a cool neighborhood in San Francisco that um, Alex, no uh, yes. Uh, Alex Reed and I got an apartment that stayed in the hands of comedians for like 23 years oh, well. to the point that when it finally left the hands of comedians, there was a story about it in the newspaper uh, because everybody who was anybody had stayed at that apartment. Ron Lynch, Ron Lynch had taken it over. But uh, Alice, Alex Reed and I were the first two people to move in, I guess, in October of 86. Uh, where was and, that apartment? Uh, 
in the Richmond district at 21st and Geary. And wow. yeah, you could not afford it. I don't think I could afford to live there now. And it was not a great play. I was kind of a dump. Right. But like now. everybody, like everybody, like John Stewart has slept on that couch. Margaret Cho slept on that. You know, it's like everybody who came into town. Jeanine Groffalo lived there for a while. Liz Winstead lived there for a while. I mean, it was. Your peer group is insane. Your your extended <laughs> peer group is is fucking bonkers. <laughs> no, it, it really is because there are these pockets of of stuff that were going on. At the it's just time. like music. It's just like music. It's right. It scenes. is just like music. There's little scenes, but like there's a lot of heavy people in Chicago at the same time doing improv at Second City. There's a lot of heavy people in in San Francisco. There, you know, obviously New York and L.A. is just chewing up and spitting out people, yeah. but. You know, the ones that that make it stick around. I mean, it's kind of a, the late 80s and early 90s were a really amazing period of time because I think like the the the, the foundation of American comedy was solidified in those cities that we mentioned. I mean, it's real. I think the so, heavy yeah, hitter. The, yeah. For the current era. Yeah. But it is like me. We're just enjoying the and now we're all at the period. And now we're all doing shows. Yeah. Now we're all doing shows out of our living rooms on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't fucking matter anymore if you made money or were successful because we're all going to fucking die. All right. <laughs> After signing a distribution deal with Electra, the band released their seminal record, Doolittle. Released in April of 1989, the album reached number eight in the UK. It was an unexpected giant success for the band. Rolling Stone placed the album at 227 on its list of 500 greatest albums of all time. And Pitchfork, I have no fucking idea what Pitchfork is. Pitchfork ranked it as the fourth best album of the 80s. However, tensions between Kim Deal and Black Francis came to a head on the Doolittle tour, and Deal was almost fired from the band when she refused to play a concert in Frankfurt, Germany. The band announced a little hiatus after their final tour show in New York City. Doolittle for me, you know, I'm a junior and a senior in college when that record is hit. Oh my God, that, that, that like, hit you like a wrecking ball. It hit me like a wrecking ball, and I saw them when they first came to Chicago, and that was like one of those transcendent experiences. You know when people talk about like the, the legend of the people that saw the Sex Pistols that for that first time when they came to Manchester, and people from New Order and Joy Division... And the Buzzcocks yep. and other bands were there, and they were so inspired by what they saw, they went out and formed their own band. I was unbelievably inspired by the Pixies when they played at the Cabaret Metro in Chicago, but I'm inherently lazy, so I basically didn't do anything about it. <laughs> the, the amazing thing about that record, I don't know how people find new things anymore because there's so much goddamn yeah. new. There's choice. And choice. Nice. There's so many bands. The internet just it allows you to have access to way too many things. We, not to date us or make us sound old, and now I'm going to sound like the old guy, but back then, we only had a couple things to filter content through. There was the MTV. cinematograph. <laughs> But, you know, hearing hearing the Pixies on college radio or 120 minutes on MTV, that's all. That was it. And then looking at your local reader, like whatever whatever the cool paper was in San Francisco and Chicago, it was the reader. And all you have to do is look in the reader and there you see the Pixies playing at the Cabaret Metro and you know what you're going to do, at least on that night. And it was just so monumentally important. And I also, as I said before, I had a crush on Kim Deal. So every time I saw them, I was one of the... I was one of those nerds who stood in front of her on her side. I have a, I have a LA week. I'm just cleaning as I found an LA weekly from 1990 
this is the this is how dated it is. The cover is a picture is Tim Burton is on the cover, and the story is is this the next Spielberg? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that week, the Pixies are at the Universal Amphitheater, and the Cocteau Twins are at the Palladium. God damn it! Yeah. Well, I think I think because I got here in September of 1990, so I don't and and I never left, and I and I would have been at both of those shows, so that must have been before, like right before I got here. The LA Weekly—that's another yeah. sad thing because that back in the 90s, you, we could not survive without the the LA yeah. Weekly pre-internet or the top or the Thomas Guide or the Thomas Guide. Can you believe? Can you imagine trying to explain <laughs> what the Thomas Guide is to people? It's it's a book of maps. You can't you had to have one. You had, you, to have one. you had to have one. You could right. not exist without one. Driving around the Hollywood Hills with a Thomas guide in your hand, trying not to hit parked cars while oh, you're looking man. for a goddamn street that you've never been on. That was the 90s. Before listening to, Rod- listening to Rodney on the Rock. Well, that was another huge one. Or I, poor I, man. Well, my friends and I, when we got here, we had a, we I moved out here with uh, my best friends from college, and we we rented a house in Hollywood and had a pool. So our place was the place where you, you were describing right. your apartment. I'm, sh- I'm sure I've been to that house. <laughs> our, 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 our house at 1339 North Ogden was that house. And we loved K-Rock flashback weekends. And from Friday night until late Sunday, we would just have K-Rock blasting throughout the house, you know, playing the vintage right. new wave stuff. And it was just, uh, I just, I miss that. I, I really miss that, that, that stuff. Um, yeah, well, Rodney but- Bingenheimer has a show on Little Steven's Underground Garage. Yes, he does. Well, he he lived around. Rodney lived around the corner from us in Hollywood. Oh wow! He lived on like a little bullshit building around the corner from the Seven Eleven on Sunset, like not far from where the Coach and Horses was. Man. Or oh, the man, he is now. And then right. Rod- Rodney used to the late eat- the late Great Pikey. The late Great Pikey. Rodney used to eat at. Canters every night. He but still the, does. <laughs> but he still does. But the de- he used to eat at the the old Denny's on Sunset, which is now the Aroma right. Cafe. He used to eat there every day for lunch, mm-hmm. and drive around our neighborhood in his weird blue convertible that was in the the Ramones movie Rock and Roll yeah. High School. He was my I favorite. Mean, cele- I mean, you know, in a city of celebrities, I still get chills when I see uh, Rodney in public. Yeah, sure. Magical little rock and roll elf. Okay, before I forget, I want to share one story with you because before the pandemic hit and those of us who were going to shows were enjoying shows, I know that you and I were at the same Pixie show at the Troubadour. Yes. Because I believe that your lovely girlfriend texted me the next day and said, hey, were you in the crowd? We think we saw you. Yes, yes. Kat said, yeah, Kat said that. Kat said that. Now, so let me tell you what happened before I forget. So, uh, I went with my brother and uh, our dear friend Dave Phillips, and they had fancy tickets, so they got to sit up in the balcony. I was down on the floor, and because I'm a fan of Kristen Hirsch from The Throwing Muses, we got uh, there early to see her full right. set. I got super close, and I was like basically one head away from Black Francis for the show. Now, we ate at Guisado's Tacos on Santa Monica Boulevard before the show. Oh, by I the way, was, just, just this, you telling this story... I'm thinking, like, what a world! You could have, you could go to a taco place and then go to a different place and then stand around people. All oh, right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, without a mask. <laughs> Masks weren't required. You didn't have to stand six feet in front of people. Yeah. And uh, this and, was and, on, this was on Earth. 
<laughs> oh, it's a long time ago, Dana. Amazing. This is before the pandemic. Yeah. But uh, but what happened was, I would say roughly around minute 50 or minute 55, my tacos stomach. Arrived. The, ta- mm-hmm. the tacos arrived. Okay? Taco truck pulled up. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had a really hard decision to make because I'm watching one of my God bands and I'm, yeah. I could reach out and touch Black Francis. I could hear what they were saying to each other between songs, but I knew that I was in deep trouble and I had to get back to Studio City from the Troubadour. Oh, it was oh, that bad. It was that- oh, 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 it was that bad. Yeah. And I started to sweat profusely. My, sh- my, I'm soaking wet because I'm like, dear God, please, 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 Jesus, I'll turn my life over to you. If you just give me this favor, please take away my stomach ache. Jesus doesn't exist. It wasn't happening. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, so finally, I had to pull the trigger. Interesting when I, choice of words. When I turned around, I had no idea how packed that place was. That oh, yeah. You're like, I'm not going to get out of here. Nope. It took me, it took me like 14 very long minutes to make my way. Uh, from one side of the room out in the back behind the bar and then to get out. I got, I, I have a secret parking spot over near the Troubadour. I got in my car and I would say that if I would have waited another 30 seconds, I would have, yeah. I would have had an, ex- Mon- an explosion in my pants on Lancaster the, Boulevard. Right. The monkey would have gone to heaven. <laughs> oh, that's a terrible story. I know. And, and, and it was, it was a humbling experience, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a part of my history with the Pixies. Wow. Yeah, I had to pull the trigger. All right, Bossa Nova was released on August 13th, 1990. The album's sound was inspired by surf rock and space rock and leans on subjects such as aliens and UFOs. Every song of Valentine to my heart. (laughs) Every song written with one guy in mind, me. (laughs) Well, here's here's a detail that I think you will really love. During the recording of Bossa Nova, three of the band members lived in the Oakwood Apartments, along wow. with comic Garrett Morris and members of the band White Lion. The band continued to tour and released Trompe Le Mans in 1991, their final album before their big, uh, their first big breakup. The album right. included the song UMass, which we are listening to right now, and a cover of Head On by the Jesus and Mary Chain. Right, and they Planet opened, of Sound is on Trompe Le Mans. And Planet of Sound. They opened for U2 on the Zoo TV tour, but tensions continued to rise among band members, and at the end of the year, at the end of 1992, the Pixies went on sabbatical. In early 1993, Black Francis announced in an interview on the BBC that the Pixies were done. He offered no explanation at the time. Let's go back to the Pixies living at the Oakwood on Barham. It is a delicious little detail. <laughs> it is. With Garrett Morris. And members of the band White Lion. Now, I will say to people playing along at home and those of you outside the city of Los Angeles, the the Oakwood, uh, the Oakwoods are, are now the Ava Apartments, and they are located about five minutes from really? Warner Brothers Studio. They're not the Oakwoods oh, yeah. anymore? They're not the Oakwoods anymore. Uh, another huge corporate uh, apartment chain bought the Oakwoods, and so now that the sign is different, it's like... It's like but they're the still the same depressing... Dad's getting divorced building. Oh, 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 and and child actors with their families and Euros. It's it's, there's so many Euros who live. uh, I have no idea that the Oakwoods is the Oakwoods anymore. They they didn't sink a dime into, they didn't flip (laughs) any of the buildings. They didn't give it a paint job. They didn't do anything. But the Oakwoods are these weird corporate uh, apartments wedged in the side of Griffith Park. 
again, like I said, just a, a minutes from Warner Brothers Studio. And, there, and uh, you know how I describe the Oakwoods? Yes. Ho- Hollywood Gothic. <laughs> you know, it's just like everything is what you'd think at Hollywood, but it's just the dark version. Well, there's a, you know, and, and a lot, a lot of, I, I wrote on a show once and, and we, we were on the Paramount lot, but we couldn't, we couldn't get on the lot for some reason for like a week. And so my, the showrunner rented an apartment at the Oakwoods and we like broke <laughs> stories. But again, a lot of child actors and their families uh, live there because it's close to the studios. And when you fly in from Texas, after you book a show on the CW, yeah. that's where you live with your parents. Yeah. I feel like a hot shit at the but, Oakwoods. Uh, Lovering. Santiago and Black Francis lived at the Oakwoods. I just like the idea of Black Francis getting in his car and driving to the Toluca Lake Trader Joe's. I mean, that that f- fills me with a very odd joy. <laughs> One of my favorite albums is uh, Teenager of the Year. Uh-huh. Which solo, is, the Frank Black solo album. Right, second solo album. Mm-hmm. 94. And that's a, to me, that's a very Southern California-sounding album. Oh, like well, I, he's, got, he's got a lot of Southern California in him. Yeah. Yeah, because I think he's. I, am I wrong? I think he like lived at a, when he was young in Whittier or something like that, and so he has maybe a very yeah. heavy Southern California thing to him. Do you remember your first apartment in L.A.? Oh, of course. Where was 825 it? Eight twenty-five Allendale Avenue, right behind the Peterson Art Museum. Now, <laughs> now one of the one of now one of the ugliest buildings on the face of this planet, but uh, at the time it was just another box in the May Company which is now right. Mocha. But yeah, I lived, I lived right there at Allendale and uh, 8th. Also the spot where uh, Biggie Smalls was gunned down. W- was it? I was right around the corner from that Irish pub that closed about a year ago. Tom, Tom Bergens. Tom Bergens, right. It was right yeah. around the corner from that. Yeah, uh, the big- I didn't know that that's where Biggie bought it. Biggie bought it outside of the Peterson Auto Museum because he was oh, at a party at the Peterson Auto Museum. Oh, well, yeah, he was right around the corner from my house. That's a grim place to die on the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax. Yeah, no, you're looking at looking at uh, that weird diner. That weird diner. It's, it's not a diner. A, it's only you know. I am the only person I know that has purchased and eaten a meal at that diner. And I think it's been a location of a diner, but never a diner. But at one point, I went in there and had spam and eggs. Well, that area, that area is getting fancy. Yeah, it's all gussied up now. Mid-City, Miracle Mile, Museum Row, yada, 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 yada. All right, we're wrapping up some Pixies. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Bam Thwok in 2003. I, I Go love ahead. this song. I have an interesting story about Can I tell you a weird story about this song? Go, tell me. Thwok? Yeah. Jerry Santiago, who I, you know, one of the great things about the Pixies is that since then, I've kind of gotten to know them. Like, I, Joey Santiago has been in my podcast, like... Had several conversations with uh, uh, Frank Black, uh, and uh, so I had, D- I had David Lovering on my podcast. One of the things that David Lovering said on my podcast was that he assumed that the band was going to break up after every tour, starting at, I believe, Doolittle. It's right. Just like, it's just like one of those I just assume. But it's a it's a complicated bunch of people. Yeah. So I was talking to Joey Santiago about Banthwalk, which I love, and I go, there's this beautiful Wurlitzer organ middle eight and Banthwalk that is totally un it's just it's just gorgeous. And it was like his it was his father-in-law, this weird tape that he found of his father-in-law playing the organ. 
and he played it. He liked it. He thought it was weird, and he played it for uh, Charles, and they liked it. And they had to like slow it down, but they put it in the song, and and that song, and that was recorded like 20 years before the rest of that song. Wow. And it's and I and I. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's a great song. Well, the song came about because in 2003, a series of phone calls among band members resulted in some low-key rehearsals and a decision to reunite. By February 2004, a full tour was announced and tickets for nearly all the initial tour dates sold out within minutes. The band played their first reunion show on April 13, 2004 in Minneapolis, and then they appeared at Coachella where Brendan Smith and his brother Ryan drove down just to see the Pixies. They spent much of 2004 touring throughout Brazil, Europe, Japan, and again in the U.S. And in 2000, June 2004, they released Bam Thwok. We're almost nearing the end of the Pixies stories. Let me just read. Let me just oh, The original up. lineup. We're yeah. at the end of the original lineup. We are nearly at the end of the original lineup. A sad tale. To celebrate the 20th anniversary of the release of Doolittle, they launched a tour in October of 2009 where they performed the album track for track, uh, including B-sides, and that tour continued on in 2011. On June 14, 2013, the Pixies announced that Kim Deal had left the band again. She was replaced by Kim Shattuck from The Muffs for the rest of that 2013 European tour. Shattuck was then replaced by bassist Paz LaChantaine for the 2014 tour. That version of the Pixies continues to record and tour to this day. We are listening to On Graveyard Hill from their 2019 album, Beneath the Irie. Right. They have, uh, they have Beneath the Irie, they have Indie Cindy, and they have uh, Head Carrier. I'm not going to be a nerd and be mad that Kim Deal isn't in the band because I very much enjoy Paws. And I don't think yeah, they've lost I do too. any of their magic. And I have to say, as a Pixies fan, I have gotten to see more Pixies shows in the last 10 years than in their first 10 years. You know what I mean? Like they've, they've been playing L.A. so much. Like they had a show at the Ace Theater. That was fantastic. They had a show yeah. for sort of like nerdy fan club members at the the music box across from Pet Boys on Hollywood. That was a fucking ridiculous yeah. show. That was Doolittle. I saw the, I saw X at the music box. Oh, that's that's another one of my uh, seminal god bands. Their new album. Uh, so here's the thing: Beneath the Irie is great. You know, it's a, and 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 the new. It's like I love the Who. Right. I bought the new Who album. <laughs> Yeah, how was it? <laughs> it's I bought it. Right. I bought it. I right. supported the cause. Right. La Casa. <laughs> but you know, head carrier, I'll put on. And it's good. And the, and Alphabet Land, the new X album, is fucking fantastic. It is it's like they went it, it was like it came out in eighty eight. It's like they did see how we are and then they made that. It was they didn't <laughs> skip a beat. Listen to it. It's on Bandcamp, and it's I love it. Amazing. I haven't had the time to listen to it yet, and I'm actually hoping to get one of the members of X on uh, this particular podcast. But who do you uh, want to get on, Mr. John Doe? Yeah, I'm going to be. I'll be speaking to Mr. Doe next week, so I may be able to well, facilitate. That is incredibly kind of you. We have Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks coming up, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in a matter of days on the Brando Cast. My, I'm not that cool, but my friend Tom DeSavia. Wrote That's, two books with John Doe. Well, he's the conduit. Tom DeSavia is the conduit. I was there the night 
uh, at Largo recently. Oh, you were there. Okay, yeah. Pre-pandemic when you moderated the panel discussion of all the great L.A. punk luminaries, John Doe, Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's, Pleasant Gaiman. Uh, that was a fantastic night. And I, I think so I talked to you afterwards. Well, you'd said like you, you didn't have much time to really prepare for the, the panel discussion. Is that right? Or you were. At yeah. And I was so, and it was just like, talk, it, it, it was like walking into the jaws of the beast. It's like, who, who's the, what's the hippest thing you can imagine? A bunch of punk rockers. Yeah. Who've and aged well. Who've, who've aged, aged well. well. Yeah. What's the least hip thing you can imagine? A comedian. <laughs> you know so i knew like if i knew enough i was so glad that i did it at my age now and not when i was younger and dumber to think here's how i'll impress them right. uh, i only you know how i'll impress them by listening <laughs> you know, so i fortunately i i was old enough to not make that grotesque mistake well, you killed it because it was that was a, a fantastic night. Just let them go, yeah. All the stories that those people have from living the punk rock life in Los Angeles in the late seventies and early eighties. I mean, uh, for me, that's just mana from heaven. I, was, I love that era. You know, L.A. in the early eighties, late seventies. Not only is the music scene exploding, the comedy scene is redefining itself. Not only just because of the improv and comedy store, but that's the birth of Pee Wee Herman. Right. At the groundlings. At the groundlings. All of that stuff. And and Rubens was also there at Largo. Yep. And I'm in the courtyard and and I and and I'm standing there and I see Paul Rubens walk up to John Doe and he goes, Hey John. And he goes, Hey Paul. <laughs> and then they Paul says, Hey Dana. And I go, Hey Paul. And I'm like, All right, I went through a bubble. Uh, I'm inside a bubble now. <laughs> I like 23 year old me has just shot my pants like Brendan Smith at the Troubadour almost. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's the best part of living in LA. I have to say selfishly because you, yeah, you do. hundred percent. If you stick around long enough, you will find yourself in a situation where you're having dinner with a luminary or yeah. you're doing a project with a luminary or someone that you, you know, that you dressed like when you were 23. Like I'm guilty of, Oh boy. Oh, I, boy. I, I, I'm guilty of trying to dress like Paul Westerberg and, or Tommy Stinson, depending on what day it was in the, in the late eighties. And, and there's a possibility that I might get Tommy on this show too. So, you know, it, it, yeah. the, the world is a very, Strange and wonderful place. Well, let me just say this, Dana Gould, because we're wrapping up. Let me. Oh, we have the exact to... same musical taste. <laughs> well, I, oh, oh, yeah. Well, because we could have done the jam. I could have nerded yeah. out on, with the jam with you and Elvis Costello. Let me just say, yeah. let me ask you one last thing before I let you go. If there was any specific time in L.A. that you would have per preferred to live in, what would it have been? I can tell you my answer. But uh, is there an era that you romanticize? Is there a yeah, 1966 to 1969. We're the same person. We're we're the same person because I want to be at Ciro's when the birds are the house band. Yeah. On YouTube, there is a clip of a drive down Sunset Boulevard in 1967 during, yeah. during the day. Yep. And you just see every of the whiskeys there. And, and, and just like it's as close to a time machine you should get. You know, there was in the summer of 1967, Star Trek was filming in the Paramount lot. Planet of the Apes was filming on the Fox lot. Wow. And the doors were the house band of the whiskey on the same night. Right. Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. That to me is like, I can't comprehend that.
That, uh, that be, be, because I love the Sunset Strip. Like I worked at Tower Records briefly on Sunset when I first moved uh-huh. here, and I and only because I just wanted to feel like I was a part of. Did something. you know Paul F. Tompkins? Because he I, worked Tower. He worked at Tower Video. I knew that later. Oh, okay. I, I I work primarily at Tower Westwood, but they would have us work at Tower Sunset all the time. Like sure, a couple sure, times sure. A week. So, but I, I I think I talked about that. Yeah, Paul worked Paul worked at Tower later. Video. But like my friends worked at Book Soup. You know, blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Boring for people who don't know, but LA is a lot of fun. So fuck off if you don't. Yeah, care. exactly. You missed it. Well, <laughs> you missed it. You missed it. Oh, that, and that was before the pandemic hit. That was, yeah, that was B, BV, BP, before the pandemic. Yeah, now my world is open. Now we're all, now we all have to drink pine salt just to leave the house. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try that. I think I'm going to try some disinfectant wipes tonight. I'm going I'm I'm to vape some Clorox. It might work. Uh, sun plus vaping. It makes sense to me. 10 years ago, if you'd said, okay, the entire globe is going to shut down because of a pandemic. Do- the Donald Trump will be president. Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby will both be in prison for rape. And there'll be a big story on the news telling people not to drink pine salt, even though the president suggested it. You know, I'd be, I'd be like, you gotta. I don't believe you gotta take. You gotta take out one or two of those things. You're That's crazy. That's just too much. You got to take out one or two of those things. Well, Dana, we've been talking for one hour and 38 seconds, and I cannot thank <laughs> you. I cannot thank you more from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much Anytime, for, buddy. For, for, for doing this. Promote. Just take a couple seconds the to Dana, promote. Uh, we'll the Dana up. Gould Hour, the Dana Gould Hour podcast on wherever you get your podcast. It's free and worth it. I, and I guarantee you it's better than this. So check no, it out. No, no. Check it out, ladies and gentlemen. Dana Gould. Dana Gould. Dana Gould. Thank you. And thank you, Cats Thanks, and Kittens, buddy. for listening to the show. Uh, don't forget to follow us uh, on Twitter uh, and Instagram. And uh, look us up on Patreon. We're free, too. But if you want to kick in a buck or two, uh, I wouldn't say no. Uh, mm-hmm. Then I can, I can go buy my own uh, disinfectant spray and Clorox at the Ralph's. At the Ralphs on Magnolia and Vineland. All right, Dana, again, thank you. Now I know your Ralphs. (laughs) I have a couple Ralphs. I also do the Ralphs on Ventura and Vineland. That's the better Ralphs. Um, The Ralphs at Ventura and Vineland has not terrible fried chicken. (laughs) Neither does does the Toluca Lake Vons, by the way. Now now my curiosity is peaked. (laughs) All right. You're the absolute best. Uh, Until next time, cats and kittens.